This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays. On this episode, we're going to examine how the pandemic has impacted the battle against cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, in 2020, 1.8 million people received the heartbreaking news that they had been diagnosed with cancer. There were more than 600,000 deaths. Today, you're going to hear from Renee Marsh. She is a CNN correspondent who lost her son, Blake. He was just 25 months old. What you're hearing right now is Blake playing peekaboo with his dad, Kedrick Payne, in a hospital room. Renee, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate your time, and I just want to say, full disclosure, Renee and I have known each other for years, first as competitors on the same beat. She was the transportation correspondent for CNN. I was the transportation correspondent for CBS News. In the last couple of years, I've gotten to know her family and Blake's story. Part of the reason I wanted to interview her is because I am in awe of her strength the strength that she and her husband, Kedrick, have shown through Blake's battle against cancer. Let's begin by talking about the feelings, Renee, that you had when Blake was born. I, you know, I think back to March 14th, 2019, and that day really does bring a smile to my face because to this day, it really is the best, was the best day of my life, is the best day of my life. Um, something transformational happened inside of me, just becoming a mother on that day, um, just wanting to protect Blake. And um, I was just filled with so much hope to see what this little person would become. And so, you know, that day, March 14th, remains the best day of my life when Blake was born. And he brought so much joy into our house, uh, into our family. And I, you know, the feeling that people say, like, you know, when you exhale, like Blake made me exhale because that's how happy and joyous I felt inside to be this perfect little boy's mom. Um, and he just he was really a special child. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I saw a lot of pictures. And how would you describe how he looked to you? I mean, Blake, the thing that I was so obsessed with with Blake were his big, bright eyes and his just amazing, shining personality. He also had this habit that he had developed uh, when he was a toddler, um, where at various times throughout the day, he would shut his eyes and he clasped his hands in a prayer, prayer formation. And he was reminding my husband and I to pray. And we loved that he even knew that and had observed us enough to remind us. And it always seemed like he would do it at just the absolute perfect time that we needed to do to say a prayer. So that's why I say Blake was so, so very special. You paint the picture of such a beautiful little boy. And I'm wondering, what was it like to see him grow and develop in those first nine months? I look back and I was actually thinking about it today. I mean, when I look back at those first nine months, I felt that I had the most perfect life. I mean, I have a great job and a great company. I had my best friend as my husband. And then I had this perfect, cute, healthy baby boy for nine months. And I truly look at that point of my life as like pure perfection would not change anything. 
Blake was hitting all of his milestones and it was so fun, like any other parent, uh, to see him doing things like tummy time and rolling over and starting to babble, all of those things he was doing. So we got a lot of joy. And then uh, when Blake was nine months old in December of 2019, I really feel like our perfect world truly shattered um, when we got the worst possible news, which was that Blake had brain cancer. How did you handle that diagnosis? We handled it one moment at a time. I, I, when I even think about it now, that day, and it was like around, it was like after midnight on December 24th that we got the official diagnosis that he had a fast growing tumor in the center of his brain. Um, I just remember being in shock almost because we never expected a cancer diagnosis. Um, and then you just worry, what does this mean? Does this mean my child is going to die? What, how do we save him from this? Um, you know, does this mean chemotherapy? I mean, so much kind of went through my mind and it was hard to navigate it all, but it just feels like if you imagine looking at your TV screen, you imagine looking at scenery that's bright and vivid, and then all of a sudden it turns black and white. Like that's kind of what happens to your world. Your world is beautiful. And then it's just a dark cloud. And I really felt like, you know, my heart plunged down to my feet. It, it, it's, it really is the worst that life has to offer when you hear that your child has cancer. I just want to go a little deeper because in getting to know your family, I've also learned that you are a strong woman. How did this impact you as a mom? Well, you know, going all the way back to that first day of March 14th when Blake was born, I think most mothers will say there is this instinctual thing that you know, happens to you where you become very protective. I was mama bear from the moment that I held Blake. Um, I never took my eyes off of him and that didn't stop then. But, you know, when you feel like you want to protect this being that you, who you love so much, but the thing that you have to protect them from is cancer and brain cancer at that, you then realize your whole kind of view of the world begins to change. Your whole view of life begins to change. I was once so, this is a deeply personal thing, but I can share with you, um, Jeff, that, you know, during that time when Blake was healthy and like I said, I felt like life was perfect. I was so naive to think that you can build the life that you want based on the decisions that you make in life. You can get what you want. But this taught me that actually we have, absolutely no control over our life. It's how you react to life circumstances is the only thing that you have control over. And so here I was, I couldn't protect Blake from this, but how I would react is to be an advocate for him, to ask questions. I, I started to read up as much as I could about cancer and his particular kind of cancer. And, you know, what were the treatments that were available? I, I was Blake's biggest advocate. And, you know, I, I talked about this before when I when I spoke to Congress in, in trying to explain what parents with children with cancer often end up having to do. I mean, I, I found re researchers on my own, both in and out of the United States to almost form my own advisory board to make sure that the doctors, you know, where we were getting care we're also kind of thinking about this in a group setting with other researchers to make sure that we were making the right decisions for Blake. But what you find out and learn when you go through this journey of childhood cancer is that as much as you pour into the research and finding researchers, the problem is there's so much that is unknown about childhood cancer. There is a lack of research. You don't know this until you kind of walk in this kind of lifestyle or walk this journey, um, you don't realize 
the lack of funding, the disparity between funding adult cancer research and childhood cancer. You don't realize these things until you're living it. And then you have to somehow still have hope, even though you realize that there's no research for your child's cancer. There's no cure for it. There's no effective treatment. Um, so it's, it's a difficult thing that it's not just unique to me, but it's a story that's happening right now. As you, as you and I speak, there are children in the hospital today with cancer that doctors don't truly understand their cancer and there is no cure. And, um, you know, their parents are navigating that reality. Renee, what you described, it sounds like your first instincts as a mom kicked in. And then your instincts as a top-notch reporter kicked in as well. And so I know you know the numbers when it comes to pediatric cancer. And I'm sure you know those stats by heart. How disturbing are they? For me, I know that I didn't know these statistics beforehand. I know it and know it intimately because I was thrusted into this cancer journey with my, my son. But I think many people who may have perfectly healthy children or their only sort of um, uh, knowledge as far as childhood cancer is a commercial that they may see on television with a child smiling with a bald head. But there's so many layers to this. Um, and it's disturbing because at the end of the day, for a lot of childhood cancers, when a child gets this diagnosis, they're already, the odds are so significantly stacked against them because if there's no research for your child's cancer, there's almost no chance for your child to survive. So it just feels like a, a great injustice for children with cancer because we failed them in a way as a nation almost. And the industry pharma as well, because not enough money is being devoted to researching drugs and treatments specific to childhood cancers. And I say specific to childhood cancers because the biology of an adult's cancer is totally different than a child's cancer. And what people don't realize is right now, the majority of children, they're getting treated with chemotherapy that was originally developed for adults four decades ago. And I know Blake was on a chemotherapy drug that was actually created seven decades ago. So that is our standard of care for children with cancer. And that is just unacceptable. And so why do you think that the research in this area has seemingly stalled? Is it because there are fewer cases like Blake's when you compare it to the other forms of cancer that predominantly affect older people? Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to say like to, you know, there have been advances. I don't want to paint a picture as if no childhood cancer has any research. There are cancers like leukemia and lymphoma where there have been a great focus on research. There's been funding and the survival rates have improved. However, in areas like brain cancer amongst children, there is a vast knowledge gap. And there is not the research there. The, the knowledge is just not there and the cures aren't there. Um, so it really depends on the kind of cancer. But there are many of them where there are no research. But why is this the case? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It is a numbers game when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry. They are going to put their resources and funds where they believe they will get the biggest return. And when you look at the numbers, absolutely more adults get cancer than children. And so it is a profitable decision to focus your efforts on developing drugs for adults. Um, but if we step back for a second, I mean, you know, the children, our children are the future of this country and it, and cancer is the number one cause of death amongst children. So what we are saying is this is a disease that kills children the most, but because not as many children have cancer as adults. We're not going to invest uh, significantly in this space. That is what <laughs> we've decided, um, you know, for our children. And it just, to me, it doesn't feel right. And, you know, Blake is not here anymore, but I continue to fight in his honor. But also just, I can't divorce myself from the love that a parent has for their child. So 
I'm speaking out for all the children who this is their reality right now. They're in hospitals taking four decades old chemotherapy drugs or drugs that were made seven decades ago. You are so eloquent in speaking on Blake's behalf. I know that you spoke with members of Congress in September. For Blake and every child who has died of cancer, it's what happens between diagnosis and death that is the greatest injustice. And that is the space of time where your leadership is so desperately needed. What was the most important thing that you wanted to convey to them? Yeah, so on September 24th, I spoke with members of Congress, uh, members of the Childhood Cancer Caucus, and I shared with them what I learned along the way about childhood cancer. And I sort of peeled back the curtain to help them to understand what the reality is for this disease and the fact that we need to find, as a country, ways to fund more research for this disease. Um, there have been some very powerful pieces of legislation that have been helpful, but as I said to members of Congress, as long as we have children who are dying from a disease where there is no research, that means that we have so much more work to do. And there are members who believe that we do need to do more. My intention for the speech was to help them to understand a mother's experience with her child, where the, where the injustice is as far as lack of research and lack of um, effective treatments and motivate them to find new and unique funding sources for childhood cancer research. I know this is difficult to talk about, but I also know that it's important for you to get the word out. And I wanted to spend the last few minutes, if we could, talking about Blake at the end and your family when he passed. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, with Blake, his fight was about almost a year and a half. And um, at the very end, you know, we lost Blake on April 14th of 2021. And to see your child dying from cancer is not anything that I wish for any parent. It is the most heartbreaking thing to see your child dying from cancer. And I would say before we actually lost Blake, we lost him days before because the bright, shining, smiling child that I had known had gradually kind of slipped away, even though he was still physically with us, technically in the days leading up to the 14th. Uh, you know, he, he kind of wasn't because he was so sedated just to keep him comfortable. Uh, but it was difficult to see and it stays with you, but I try to focus on the good memories with Blake and Blake, even though he's not here, continues to inspire me in such a major way because I, I really do want to be impactful in trying to change the scenario where there is very little um, funding for pediatric cancer research. And to do that, uh, we created a fund in Blake's name in partnership with the Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation. Uh, it is called the Blake Payne Star Fund. And I'm very excited about it because it is a pioneering effort. We have created this fund to um, specifically fund research for pineoblastoma. As I mentioned, there is no significant research right now. So I've teamed up with uh, two renowned uh, pediatric neuro-oncologists and scientists, um, one in Canada and one from St. Jude Children's Hospital. And I'll be working with them uh, as we try to uh, build a base of, of research for pineoblastoma, the type of cancer that killed Blake. And I'm also using my love of writing and in honor of Blake's favorite pastime, reading. I've written a children's book, which will be out this fall. And 100% of all of the profits from the children's book, it's called The Miracle Workers, Boy Versus Beast, uh, will be donated to that fund uh, to fund research for pineoblastoma. So that is what I can do to continue to fight uh, for Blake. 
Um, and I hope that I will move the needle in a significant way. Uh, the book, one last thing, I just want to say it's a fun book. It's inspirational. Uh, it's for any child, really. It's a book about hope. We've been through a lot the last two years. The entire world has been through a lot with a pandemic and everything else in between. And this book is just an inspirational story that teaches you the power of having hope. And I just hope that um, it will allow parents to teach children that very, very sort of abstract concept of hope. Uh, because hope is really what is helping me to survive um, the worst life circumstance of losing a child. And it's also hope is the tool that helped my husband and I survive the cancer journey with Blake. So I do think that's one of the most powerful tools that we can have, even when we're facing some of life's toughest circumstances. I think that our listeners will agree with that assessment and that your strength and grace are inspiring. I'm looking forward to the book. Renee Marsh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff. Dr. Julie Graylow is the Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. So where does cancer care stand now, given the fact that hospitals have been filling up with patients battling COVID-19? Well, it's it's been a tough time for everyone, uh, including uh, cancer patients and cancer care providers. I mean, um, there have been so many pressures. Uh, things have been changing daily. It's been hard to keep up our patients. Um in general on treatment uh, are, and be, partly because of their cancers are more immunocompromised. So uh, making sure we stay on top of uh, protecting our patients, keeping them out of the hospital so they don't uh, get exposed to others with COVID. Um, it, it's, it's been a hard, hard time for everyone. Anecdotally, we're hearing reports of oncologists who are just giving up and leaving the profession because there is this level of frustration there and they're just choosing to walk away. Have you heard or seen reports that back that up? So um, at ASCO, I have to say we've not been hearing reports of an overwhelming number of oncologists leaving patient care. We certainly, um, we know some are. I, our data usually lags by about a year by the way we collect it. So, um, it, you know, we might not be caught up. It's clear that even predating the pandemic, the practice of medicine, the practice of oncology has gotten, you know, more complicated. The administrative burden has gotten higher. Electronic health records, which had a promise of actually being helpful, uh, end up being a big burden, um, increasing prior authorizations from insurance companies or outright denials, um, you know, which we do need to rein in the costs. We use expensive drugs, but we need mechanisms where when we're using them for approved, you know, populations that the FDA has reviewed that we don't have to go through a bunch of back and forth to, to get our patients drugs. So it, that's all separate from the pandemic. It's just gotten a lot more burdensome to do the best care for our patients. And and there's burnout issues in oncology. There's no question. Well, okay. Burnout issues. Is it just what seems to me to be a bureaucratic nightmare that is turning people away from the profession? Or is it more than that? Well, it's, it is absolutely more than that. Oncology um, you know, we deal with, with death and dying and cancer diagnoses. And so that we, we start with, um, you know, having a profession where we, we do talk, we have to give bad news a lot. And, uh, you know, we, we deal with cancer. Uh, it's, it's, that's tough in and of itself. And it's, it's not just oncologists, it's everyone, um, you know, who, interacts with our patients. And of course, our patients have uh, this, the same issues. So we start with a, a hard um, you know, profession 
and then you add on top of it some of what you're calling the bureaucratic uh, issues, the increased administrative burden, a pandemic on top of this where we nobody expected it to go on this long, uh, and it just all starts to mount. I'd say in the first few minutes of this interview, we really painted a bleak picture of what oncologists are doing and how they're being impacted. Is there a silver lining here? Well, yes, there is. And so um, I'll point to two things. First of all, we just had our first uh, in-person, it was hybrid, but in-person meeting uh, in the past uh, 18 months, uh, a quality care meeting that ASCO puts on, um, and we had it in Boston. Um, Of the almost 700 registrants, about half were in person. You know, we mandated vaccines and masks and we had social distancing and all. But it so that that offered some hope that we're going to get back to in person face to face at that meeting. uh, We had an award winner, uh, Dr. Benjamin Korn, uh, who won our humanitarian award. He flew all the way in from Jerusalem because he said this was just too important uh, to him and he came in for this meeting. And the title of his talk related to instilling hope in oncology. And hope, not necessarily meaning we're working toward cure in every patient, but setting goals, no matter what the situation, mapping out a pathway to achieving those goals and having hope of of getting to some of those goals. And that hope for our patients actually helps with hope in the treating uh, oncologist and the rest of the healthcare team and can really help with the burnout and the wellness piece. And so I thought that was You've asked about, you know, is there hope on the horizon? I just loved that piece and have communicated with Dr. Korn about, you know, how we can take some of those techniques um, that he uses uh, uh, into our ASCO and our practices. Um, the second piece is ASCO at the end of last year came up with a road to recovery report, which was about learning from the COVID-19 experience, basically to improve cancer care and cancer research. And were there things, you know, a silver lining almost where we had to shake things up, but we might be able to get rid of some things that we didn't need to be doing, simplify it, bringing it to the patient uh, in a lot of ways. And so this report really focuses both in the areas of cancer care and clinical research in one, making things more equitable. The pandemic clearly you know, stressed the already inequitable care uh, that we see in this country, bringing affordable care uh, to our patients, streamlining excessive and unnecessary requirements, regulatory requirements in practice and research. We, we learned how to, to get around a lot of those things and we got waivers for a lot of those things. And then the ultimate goal being improved outcomes for our patients. So yes, there there is hope, uh, as Dr. Korn brought up. Yes, there is the potential for a road to recovery on the horizon, and that's what we're we're really working toward. What is the standard of care today? Do you have teams of doctors working together to care for patients? Well, I think. We've agreed for a long time that multidisciplinary care, teamwork and care is the optimal approach for a patient. I mean, that even goes into, you know, World Health Organization recommendations for national cancer control planning. Some sites do it better than others. So you've described, you know, bringing together multiple disciplines across surgery, radiation, medical oncology, pathology, um, you know, imaging, and then bringing in the supportive care groups and the palliative care groups and the the rehab medicine, nutrition. Um, We brought in an integrative medicine program to to help us uh, as well. So that's, we've all agreed for quite a long time that that's the ideal. Small practices, very rural practices, 
they can't possibly have all of these on site. I know we've gone through a lot of looking at how the increasing importance of genetics um, uh, in defining patients at high risk who might have um, fam familial risk for cancer and how not all sites can have a genetic counselor. And some of the things we've learned from the pandemic, I think, about how we can use telemedicine, we don't need to have people on site, we don't need to have the patient on site even to provide some of these services, I think um, is going to help us have better teamwork and multidisciplinary cares. All of our nutrition, all of our social work went to telehealth once the pandemic hit. And we were able to provide, in my mind, much better care than bringing the patients in for separate appointments a bunch of times. So I think it's our goal. I think smaller practices, more rural practices have had much bigger barriers in achieving that. And uh, yet I think it's the right thing. And I'm sorry to hear that your wife is going through breast cancer treatment. You mentioned rural practices. What is the state of availability of high quality oncological care in rural settings? Well, the practice of oncology in very rural settings like that is obviously much different than in the big city. Um, <clears throat> in our 2021, um, ASCO workforce um, evaluation, about 10, 11% of oncologists were rural. But if you look at how much of the country, you know, that the, the designation of rural is, it's the majority, right? Where, you know, we've got big areas. So the issue of somebody who might live 100 plus miles from the closest cancer center is a big one. We're investigating an innovative hub and spoke model um, actually using um, uh, Montana uh, as an example where uh, we've got um, a group who's very interested at a cancer center in being kind of the hub for care. We might branch it out to also being the hub for clinical trials and then partnering with sites that don't necessarily have an oncologist on staff, but could have oncology trained chemotherapy nurses to give drugs, for example. Um, we're not going to be able to take a radiation therapy site out to all of those places, so it doesn't work quite as well for radiation. But radiation is usually, you know, a, a few weeks at a time. Yes, you might have to relocate briefly, but chemo can go on for years in a metastatic setting, right? So, um, this hub and spoke model where there's, you know, a, a, a cancer center at the hub and then more rural sites that can do labs, that can do imaging, that can give some infusional therapies and all. That's one of our approaches to try to help with the rural issue. Dr. Julie Grelo, thank you. Dr. Bill Kantz is the Chief Medical and Scientific Officer for the American Cancer Society. How has the pandemic had an impact on cancer? The pandemic has had a major impact on cancer uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it has reduced screening. We've, we have seen a tremendous drop in cancer screenings, and we believe we have a lot of undiagnosed cancers out there because of that. People who need to be see their doctors get screened and treated. We've had the hospitals having to look at uh, to to postpone or delay cancer care because of the COVID pandemic. Then we've had also the the fear the fear of getting COVID, fear of being exposed, and and finally with in the earlier parts in particular as there was job loss, insurance loss. Uh, there was a reluctance to get your screening. It's like making a choice between getting a screen or paying your rent where, where that choice would be obvious. So there's been multiple ways that, that the pandemic has affected uh, uh, diagnosis and treatment of cancer. So how is the American Cancer Society getting the word out about getting screened? So the American Cancer Society has a major effort uh, of returning to screening a return to screening program where we have worked in multiple areas, multiple levels, multiple populations uh, and collaborations with health systems, 
with institutions, with other societies, uh, other cancer organizations, all trying to come together to work closely together to get the screening relaunched and diagnose the, those patients. And in particular, the pandemic has, has exacerbated the disparities in cancer treatment, you know, the gap between the served and the underserved. So we also have a focus on looking at the underserved populations, see how we can, can uh, especially get them back to screening because they have been affected uh, in, in, in many adverse ways. Recently, I read that more people died from cancer than from COVID-19 during the first year of the pandemic. I'm not trying to minimize the impact of either cancer or, or COVID-19. The point is that cancer is still a major health issue for millions of Americans. Yes, yes. Can cancer is still a, a major health issue for Americans. And the uh, number of people who die from cancer will be greater than the number of people who have died from COVID. Do you think there needs to be a recalculation of how scientists think about attacking cancer and curing cancer, given the innovation around finding a vaccine for COVID-19? So I think there are no a number of important innovations coming in cancer care uh, both from the diagnosis and from the treatment. If, if you start with the COVID vaccine technology, for example, uh, this messenger RNA approach where you can very quickly make vaccines to COVID or to specific areas of a patient's tumor that we would like to be able to make their bodies reject that tumor, kill the tumor. And in fact, those technologies are being used to create cancer vaccines right now. Other transformative areas are coming in cancer diagnosis, particularly in the ability to, to diagnose cancer early through a simple blood test. It's what's called multi-cancer early detection tests, MCEDs. They're in their early phases, but there's a number of different approaches to trying to, to find the cancers early because the cancer cells themselves, when a cancer sets up shop in someone's body, they give subtle clues that they're there. They may shed some of their DNA. They may shed some cells. They may shed their proteins and so forth. But there are evolving blood tests that you'll be able to get in the, uh, it, it, from your physician that can hopefully pick up cancer earlier, whole time forward. So these are in early days right now. We're waiting uh, further tests and results for these. For, but this is uh, a, an area of optimism for being able to detect cancer earlier, we hope, and easier. So those are just two examples of technology that's, that has, is coming forth. And at the same time, our treatment, our ability to design new drugs, to find new drugs, to, to stimulate the immune system against the cancer, those are, are all moving forward at a tremendously rapid pace. Uh, the, the number of drugs being approved by the FDA for cancer treatment uh, is, is continuing to increase. As someone who's treating cancer and cancer patients, what becomes the most frustrating aspect of your job? The most frustrating aspect of my job is, is uh, detecting cancer for the first time when it's in an advanced stage. Uh, I used to treat a lot of patients with pancreatic cancer and seeing that, that being diagnosed at a more advanced stage or, or seeing tumors that, that, are, that could have been diagnosed much earlier if the patient had been able to see a doctor they'd had access to a doctor, if they'd had insurance, um, if, if they lived uh, in a, one certain zip code versus another. So it's those, the, those are the most frustrating things that, that I have seen. When you know you could have picked this up earlier and now it's much more difficult to treat. I guess that's why the experts like yourself advocate for early screening as the best line of defense against cancer. Yes, it, screening is, is extremely important. We, we would love to prevent cancer. 
So that's the, the, when we can prevent cancer, that will be a, a, a great day. But we can prevent a number of cancers right now uh, by stopping smoking, by maintaining a healthy weight and an active lifestyle, by, by getting vaccinated against uh, HPV. So prevention, we really want to, to do. We can't prevent it, we want to detect it early. And that's where screening comes in. Very critical to get your screens that you, that you need uh, and uh, to be very, uh, very, very uh, decisive about getting those screens in, from your doctor. If we can't get cancers early by screening, um, then we want to have more effective treatments, of course. And so that's that, those are the three areas, prevention, early detection, and then more effective treatment that will really continue to make a difference in the outcomes for cancer. What are the forms of cancer where screening is especially important? We have cancers for which we have defined screening protocols and, and intervals, and that would be breast, colorectal, cervical, and lung cancer. And there's, there's also opportunities to screen, to screen for prostate cancer, and I encourage men to talk to their doctor about that. So those are the main cancers for which we have well-established screens. As we evolve to these other tests, these multi-cancer early detection tests, they will have other types of cancer, we believe, that we'll be able to screen to, to pick up, but we're not there yet. That will be down the road. So breast, colorectal, cervical, lung, and prostate, those are, the, those are areas where, where screening is very important. Is this statement accurate? In some ways, the focus on pediatric cancer has not been as intense as it has in other areas. I, I'm not a pediatric oncologist, so I don't have a lot of experience with the, the brain cancer or with pediatric cancers. However, the, your, your point is, is well taken that, that there are just fewer numbers of childhood cancers, uh, fortunately, but there's not been uh, as much attention paid as we could have to effective treatments and looking at other approaches to pediatric cancer, such as, as brain cancer, neuroblastoma, uh, you know, uh, the leukemias and, and so forth. The, the other side of the pediatric cancer, there's, there have been very dramatic successes in pediatric cancer. And those children, as they get older, uh, really need to have special care. Um, and uh, so as they transition, we also have to make sure that we provide pediatric cancer survivors uh, the specialized care that they, that they need, particularly if they've undergone the more extensive treatments such as bone marrow transplant. So the pediatric cancer uh, realm is, is extremely important to pay closer attention and then to follow uh, very closely as, as the, the children get older and become adults. You mentioned that there hasn't been as much focus there. Why do you think that is? They're rarer tumors in, in many cases. Uh, and uh, it, it's, there's a, a more of a focus on tumors with more patients who who develop other cancers such as breast, colorectal, and and so forth. Um, is that that is one of the ex, one of the explanations? Uh, and their efforts to really turn to pediatric cancer, looking at established drugs that are have potential there. Uh, to provide a broader uh, uh, treatment options for pediatrics. Years ago, when you decided to become a doctor, why did you want to be an oncologist? So I've, I was one of those kids that for some reason, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon in fourth grade. And when I got to my uh, to college, I was the pre-med nerd. You know, I was picked on by people for, for spending my time studying. And, and one, one engineering student in particular was especially, uh, 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 he, he made, uh, this, this engineering student uh, gave me a, a very hard time, especially hard time. 
But just before Thanksgiving, my freshman year, he said, hey, Bill, look at my foot. I have a lump on it. I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. It's not. I just look at it. And I can see that golf ball size lump on his foot to this day. And I just made asked him to promise me that over Thanksgiving, he'd see a doctor. And he did. And it was a sarcoma. So he was 19, had a sarcoma, got treatment, was out the next semester, came back in the fall, looked okay for a while. And then he experienced recurrence, uh, extensive recurrence, and lived in our dormitory until just a few weeks before he passed away. And that experience really pushed me into oncology. When you see someone like that, who's just like you, uh, you know, what, what, why him, why not me? So that was my one of my real formative experiences that has driven me into oncology uh, and uh, especially into trying to uh, create new drugs for, for patients. As someone who has family members and friends who are battling cancer, I really appreciate what you do and I appreciate your time. So many millions of people across this country rely on doctors like yourself to help them through what is a life-altering health condition. And so I really do appreciate your time and your knowledge on this topic. Oh, you're quite, you're quite welcome, Jeff. And, and it's my pleasure to, to provide any information. And I encourage people to seek information, to talk to people, um, people that can help navigate you through a, a diagnosis of cancer, through your treatment and through your survivorship. Remember, the day that you have cancer diagnosed, you are a cancer survivor. And fortunately, we're seeing more and more cancer survivors as we get better treatments. We have a long way to go, but um, we're, you know, we're here to, to help to provide that information and uh, in support of patients in a time of great need. So delighted to, to, to be able to, to speak with you today. You did bring up another good point. I think when people hear the word cancer, immediately they think negative thoughts in that, oh my, this is a death sentence. A cancer diagnosis changes your life forever. There, there's no question. I, I do not know what that feels like because I have not been told that, but it changes your life forever. But the good news is we are seeing so much progress so many hundreds of thousands of fewer deaths from cancer since its peak, uh, the peak in, uh, uh, in about 1990. So we are making incredible progress. Over the last two years, we have seen in each of the last two years, the most significant decline in the cancer death rate since we began measuring those statistics. So the progress is there and there is hope. And, you know, I just so encourage patients to seek seek the knowledge, seek information, be their, their own strong advocates, because there's, there is hope. Dr. Bill Kantz, thank you. Thank you. When a friend or family member is diagnosed with cancer, it's something that we all feel. It's a cloud that hangs over so much of your life. But as we heard from Renee Marsh, having hope is a big, big part of the battle. We're going to end this episode with an audio diary. The voice you will hear is of a man who doesn't want to be identified, but he could be any one of us, trying to be supportive of a loved one battling cancer. On February 2nd, 2021, my wife tested positive for COVID-19. It was also the same day we learned she has breast cancer. Luckily, after only a week, a rough week of body aches, extreme fatigue, and high fevers, we had put COVID-19 in a rearview mirror. But after eight months, we are still driving down the long road of her cancer treatment. We were fortunate her OBGYN discovered a lump during a breast exam. During the days waiting for the mammogram appointment, we feared the worst, but hoped for the best. And ever since then, fear and hope have seesawed for the highest levels of our emotional registers. Hope. Good news! You have the very best kind of cancer. Well, nobody actually said that, but that was the message. The tumor was determined to be in situ and very slow growing. That means the cancer was completely contained and was not aggressively growing or spreading. That would mean my wife would only have to have a lumpectomy instead of a full mastectomy. But even still, 
There were lots and lots of tests ahead. First up, another mammogram, which is a very uncomfortable and frequently painful procedure that looks inside the breast tissue. Then fear. Bad news! There were two more spots appearing in the mammogram. Then hope. They don't look consistent with cancer. Let's take a closer look with an MRI just to make sure it's nothing. Then fear. Well, the spots look like they could have spread from the tumor we thought was inside too. We call those metastases. Then hope again. MRIs are frequently wrong. Then fear again. We must needle biopsy those two masses. I, I want to be clear. We, we love our doctors, nurses, and all the medical staff who are working with us on chemotherapy, on surgery, and on radiation. But they can only tell us what they see in the latest test results. And then we all wait together until we get the next round of test results. I am not going to take you on the full roller coaster ride of the wild swings up and down as conflicting information trickles in slowly, contradicting what we had thought was true. But if you ever went to Disney World and rode the Space Mountain roller coaster, you know it's not the big ups and downs that get you. It's the fact that you're in the dark, and suddenly the roller coaster makes a turn you didn't see coming. And that happened to us more than once. We don't know all the answers to all of our questions because we need more tests again. But that doesn't mean we're going on yet another scary ride in the dark. I have watched as my wife endured incredible amounts of pain and trauma with beauty, grace, and strength. She is my hero. It will be almost a year of treatments before we are through. If all goes well, that means right before Christmas. And what a gift that will be. And that is what we are hoping for. A friend of mine once told me that hope is not just an emotion or a reaction to something you see or know. It's a choice. And we choose hope, no matter what lies ahead for us. That is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, or on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.